Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Super excited to get started on this show today. Today, we're going to be joined by Shana Sizzle. I have admired Shana from afar for a long time. I've seen her on Twitter. I've seen her on LinkedIn. I've seen her on TV. And I've just really, really enjoyed not only the wealth of information, knowledge that she has, but just the way that she presents it and everything. Just love it. And the pictures that you post to your son sometimes. That's awesome, too. So, Shana, welcome to the show. Thank you. And I'm humbled to hear that. It's always humbling when somebody's like, I'm a huge fan. I'm like, really? I'm not that special. (laughs) (laughs) It's just awesome. And just give the listeners a little background because they're like, okay, he's excited. Who is she? Tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I am the chief investment officer with Spotlight Asset Group, which is a RA aggregator. We have a network of financial advisors, wealth managers across the country. And I serve as sort of the head or voice of the investment team. I help manage our internal models and portfolios. I do manager due diligence. And really, I feel like it's not work, right? Because 90% of my job is just keeping up on what's going on in the markets and being able to speak about it on the fly. And a good chunk of my job description does involve going out and being in the media, speaking at conferences, and just being the public face of the firm, which is something I'm really comfortable with because at my previous firm, that was a big part of my job. And I started doing media. I think people don't realize how old I am because I look super young. But I started doing media in the financial crisis by accident. I was working for a very small REA at the time as just a research analyst. And the founder of that firm had written a book. And so he was doing a book tour and he had hired Gregory FCA. And we all know Joe Anthony. He's big on Twitter. And Gregory FCA is obviously a huge part of Fintwit. And he had hired Gregory FCA to help him publicize the book and help him with his book tour. And they came to him and said, you know, why don't we work in connection and also do some work for your firm? But oh, by the way, it would be really nice if we were able to have somebody else do that so that you can focus on the book and there's no conflict of interest or appearance of conflict of interest that you're only going on TV to promote your book and you're using that to promote your firm. So five employees and he was like, anybody want to do it? And so I was that kid when I was younger who liked being the star of the school play. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm a total ham. I like being in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. I've always been that way. And so I was like, I'll do it. I just did pageants when I was a teenager. And obviously anybody who follows me on Twitter, I did it more recently as an adult, mostly because I needed some sort of goal to help me after I had my son to lose the weight because I gained a hundred pounds. Most people don't believe that, but I swear to God, I gained more weight than I started with when I got pregnant. So I need something to motivate me to lose weight. And that was just my chosen path to do that. Nothing will keep you motivated than knowing you're going to have to get up in front of you know hundreds of people in a swimsuit. And so I was very comfortable being on camera and it ended up being really successful for me. I got a lot of requests. Once I started doing media, I got a lot of requests to come back. And that's really the key with the media aspect of anything. It's really hard to get your first 
opportunity with any show, any network, anything. Mm -hmm. But if you're good, they might give you a chance because of what you look like or you fit some initiative that they're doing internally or they want to spice it up. But you will never get booked again unless they think that you're compelling. So I started getting rebooked all the time to the point where they stopped calling the folks at Gregory FCA to book me and would just call me directly, Mm -hmm. the local TV stations. And so that kind of became a thing for me. And then I didn't do it for a long time because I worked for bigger firms and I was a small fish. And then when I worked at Orion, I was given the opportunity again and I've kind of run with it ever since. That's awesome. And I'm listening to, there's a few things that I wanted to point out or ask questions, little follow-up questions to. Now you mentioned beauty pageants. And so we have to talk about that because not everybody may not know about the beauty pageant experience. I didn't know about it when you were younger, but just talk to us a little bit briefly about that. And then do you think that prepared you? I didn't know you did it when you were younger, but do you think that helps you prepare to be a TV personality? Yes and yes. So let's just start with why. Mm -hmm. So I got involved in pageants because my dad was very concerned about like the path I was heading down. I grew up in a city called Worcester, Massachusetts, second largest city in New England, very blue collar, very lower and just middle class community. And my dad was a police officer and my mom was an inner city school teacher. And of course, anybody who knows kids whose parents are in law enforcement know that there's three paths those people take, maybe two. And they either go into law enforcement or they become complete delinquents. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Like, obviously my dad was a cop. So, and a lot of the kids I grew up with were police officers, kids. And I have lots of cops in my family. So my dad was a cop. My uncle Charlie was a cop. My cousin, Tony was a cop. My cousin, Michael is a cop. My sister is married to a cop. So there's lots of cops in my family. And I can tell you that those are the two paths cops kids take. Generally speaking, they either become cops or go into public service in some way military or the like, or they just completely rebel against it and become problems for law enforcement. And so I was on the being a problem for law enforcement side of the coin when I was 14, 15 years old. And so my dad was like, this is not okay. And I had no direction. And so my dad enrolled me in finishing school. He wanted his daughter to be, you know, a lady. And I went and it was fun. It was, we learned how to walk on a runway and we got to have our picture taken. And like I said, I liked being that center of attention. So it kind of appealed to me. And then one day a recruiter from the Miss Massachusetts Teen USA pageant came in and, you know, they were going to accept anybody who wanted to compete and could pay the entry fee. Like, let's just be honest. But they made it seem like an audition and they chose me. And so I competed and it really changed my life. Because women and young women that compete in pageants, like let's ignore the children's beauty pageant parts, but let's start with the teens, are typically people who are looking to improve themselves, looking to network, looking to just be more polished. And they tend to be extremely ambitious and extremely involved with the community. And I knew nobody like that prior to doing pageants. So the second pageant I ever entered was one by Maria Menounes, who's a pretty famous person in Hollywood. She used to be a host for Access Hollywood and she's been to movies and stuff. And these were the types of people I was exposed to. And then it's like you have interviews, so you got to learn how to talk and you're on stage and you got to be able to speak on your feet and you have to look presentable and look polished and speak articulately. And it took me a long time to polish up, but it gave me a reason to do so. And it also showed me what was possible beyond what I thought I could do. So it gave me direction. It straightened me out. It exposed me to completely different people that were doing really positive things with their lives. 
And it set me on a different path. And then through that, I did the Miss America system and gained scholarship money to pay for my undergraduate degree and had a communications coach. And yeah, it totally prepared me for doing media, which is why you see a lot of former pageant girls in, you know, the media, because it is a huge component of what you learn and all the skills you use in pageants to be successful are the same things you would use to be successful in the media. I had no idea that the groundwork that was being laid when you were in the pageant, learning how to speak, be on camera, you know, having goals and like overcoming challenges to achieve those goals. That's what the whole basis of the podcast show is going to be on today. And just being able to hear a little bit more about your story. And I think the listeners are really going to appreciate why we had you on because it's just, I'd never really thought of beauty pageants as I won't even say the beauty pageant as the preparation for the beauty pageant Mm -hmm. to be so instrumental in building, you know, women up and teaching them how to do something. It's more than that because it forces you to understand and get to know yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, who are you? Mm -hmm. Because when you compete in a pageant, everybody's pretty. Mm -hmm. So you need to stand out. And the only way you stand out is by being authentic and knowing who you are and knowing what your story is and doing something for your community, having impact. That's what they look for. So it's beyond being just pretty. And, you know, a lot of people get flagged for the swimsuit competition, but I guarantee you, if you talk to any woman who's ever competed in a pageant, whether she was super fit or not, they will tell you that that is the most difficult part of competing. And it's not because you want to be in super good. It is mentally difficult to stay focused and you can't starve yourself because that's not healthy. And that looks bad on stage. You need to be in the gym. You need to be eating correctly. You need to be super focused. I don't care how amazing your body is getting up on stage in a bikini and heels and front of hundreds of people takes guts and it takes confidence. And you learn those things by doing that. So, you know, people have their own opinions on it, but I think for the most part, when you understand what goes into it and the skills and the things that you learn, it's actually for me, if somebody out there has a daughter who says they want to compete in a pageant, Don't discourage them because I'm telling you right now, there's nothing but positive that can come out of that in terms of personal development, personal growth. 100% agree because what the overarching thing that I keep finding in what you're saying is discipline. Mm -hmm. You've learned discipline there. Those disciplines transfer and they continue to transfer and impact what you're doing in your life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Love it. With that being said, let's roll into women in finance. I want to talk about that just because there's so much to unpack or so much to talk about there. So I'll let you, women in finance, let's talk about it. So I think it's something that there are a lot of different people that kind of stand and are advocates for women in finance, both men and women. And they all approach it in a different way. And I think every different way, whether someone like Sonia, who likes to talk about the trials and tribulations that women go through and expose it to make the industry a better place, by putting these things on display so that more people become advocates to stop bad behavior. I think that's all very admirable. And we all have our own way of doing that. For me, my approach is I want to focus on highlighting women in the industry, being super supportive. Because throughout my career, I have not had a lot of really good supportive female role models or mentors. It's been quite the opposite, actually. And so I want to be somebody who helps encourage and brings women into the industry and is supportive of their endeavors and wants to help them. Because in my opinion, that's how you get more women. But I also like to highlight the opportunities. And I don't spend as much time talking about 
you know, some of the difficulties as others. There's others that do that really well. I choose to focus on the opportunity because I think ultimately when you're trying to encourage people to get involved, highlighting the good and focusing on the good is more encouraging than the opposite. So that's my chosen way to do it. And then I also, through the media work that I do, I play up my femininity because I think that little girls, so just be honest, whether it's cultural or whatever, little girls like princesses, they like pretty things, sparkly things. And so I feel like by doing that, I can just, and I hear it all the time, younger girls will see me on TV and nothing I say means anything to them. But what I look like is like, wow, look at that. She's wearing a pretty suit and she doesn't look stuffy and she's got her hair done and her makeup done. And I want to be like that because let's be honest, there are segment of young women that that is what they want to be. So I think I bring that to the table. And I think that the more we can expose different type of women, it's that whole, if you see it, you can be it belief, right? And the more we can put ourselves out there, the better and the more we'll encourage a whole diverse group of women to enter the field. I couldn't agree more with it. Like, and this is partly why you stuck out to me because I'm flipping through the channels or looking at CNBC or Fox News, whichever, whatever, wherever I seen you at. I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. They have a lady on. This is exactly what I was like. Oh, they have a lady on. Oh, wait, that sh- I know her. You know what I mean? That's what it was. And it's like, oh, okay, I know her. So let's see what she's talking about. And then now I'm starting to listen to what you, initially it was because you're a woman, right? Because mm-hmm. you always see two old white men talking about money. That's just what you see. I mean, call it the way I see it. You usually see old white men on TV talking about money. So when I seen you, And like, who's this young lady on TV talking about money? Oh, wow. Let's see. And I think just by you being there, the representation is there. People can see it. Young ladies are being encouraged. And as you said, your chosen method is to talk about the things that are opportunities. So what's an opportunity that for women in finance or for women in general that you like to talk focus on? I like to always talk about how women are better investors. You know, the study after study shows that not only are women better investors, but some people would think this is counterintuitive. I don't. Women are far less emotional about money and far less competitive about money than men are. That's a very broad statement, but we're talking in generalizations. And women have historically outperformed men, female portfolio managers, and teams that include women outperform all male teams. That's just a fact. And then there's other studies like Fidelity did this really interesting study a few years ago where they just looked at 401k performance of all of the people on Fidelity 401k platform. So that's a big mm-hmm. sample, right? And they compared women to men. That's it. Completely blind. These are all the women's accounts. These are all the men's accounts. What's the performance like? And turns out that women's accounts outperform the men's accounts. And there's so many different reasons for that. But I think it's an opportunity for women to enter a really challenging field. And one of the things I love the most about what we do is it's not boring. And you learn something new every single day and you kind of file it away for the next time something crazy happens. And then you start to mosaic how you think things will turn out, makes you better at your job. And that's why they always say like, you're never truly in the industry till you go through your first crisis Mm -hmm. or your first like crazy event. And the more of those you see, the better you actually get at predicting outcomes. And dealing with that because you become less emotional about it because you've kind of seen it before. You know, it's always different shades of the same thing and the outcomes are never exactly the same, but you can kind of figure out where it's going. And so needless to say, from that aspect, 
I think women don't realize that the industry is something that they could excel at and that they could enjoy. And for me, that's one of the most compelling reasons I think women should be in the field. You said so many different, so many great things. The one that just resonates with me is about women's investment performance, which call me crazy. I'm not surprised just for the sheer fact of, you know, like what you're saying, like not as emotional about money, maybe emotional about other things, but not so much about money and the competition and trying to like, you know, how men are. I'm yep. a man. I could say that I'm a man. But I think about like the opportunity. Do you think that financial literacy plays any role in helping women get into financial careers or keeping them out? Where would you say financial literacy? What role does that play? So, yes, I think that plays a big part. And I hate to say that it's almost cultural, but it is. There is a great BMO ad little snippet they did probably a year ago where it was a little story about a young girl who was in class and they were talking about financial stuff and she didn't get called on for the answer. And then she was thinking about signing up to be school treasurer and she was discouraged from doing it. And then like what happened to her life since then? And it's just little things that we don't even really think about doing because it's just ingrained in us. And I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, but things like make sure you marry rich or Don't tell. So I spent that money on, you know, women like to shop or whatever. There's just this underlying undertone that women rely on men or a partner or a father to handle their financial stuff. And, you know, even to this day, you're a financial advisor, so you can appreciate this. Most financial advisors don't engage with the wives. They just don't. And not all wives want to be engaged with, but it's a pervasive problem. And then when something happens to the husband, the wife is, knows nothing. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of times advisors lose their clients when that happens because the wife is mad that they were never included in the conversation. And there's an assumption that the husband makes more money and that's changing. I think it's something like 30% of households have a female breadwinner that's growing. But women score lower on financial literacy. So the lack of confidence has a lot to do with that. And school teachers don't feel confident teaching financial literacy. And for whatever reason, young boys tend to have somebody who talks to them about money and girls don't tend to have that. You know, it's nobody's fault, but it leads to just this path where women just feel less confident about finances in all respects because they're not educated. So If you can improve financial literacy, and this is true across the board, it's not just women, it's also poor minorities as well. And that goes beyond the inner cities. Like I talk about this a lot. So many programs focus on impoverished communities and inner cities, and there's an entire population of impoverished rural folks that get ignored. But it's the same problem. If you don't grow up educated on these things, then you can't do the necessary steps to improve your financial well-being. It's just such an important component of success in life is understanding your financial picture. Some of the things you said, and I'm thinking about as I go through this mentally compartmentalizing, but thinking about, you know, as young girls growing up, like young girls are always told to, typically they were told that math and science are boy subjects and English. And I forget the other one were more for women. So don't do that. It's when you're saying that I'm thinking, I'm going recalling this. My wife has her degree in finance. She's telling me about all of the classes she went to. She said, when I was going to college, I was the only girl in any of the classes. Maybe there's a few of us, 
maybe there was two and some, but most of them were predominantly men. And she talks to me about how that made her feel, how, you know, it's like, I don't know if I can say anything because what you see a lot of in the cultural stuff that happens there in suppressing the ability or the desire to have those questions from men, even unbeknownst to them doing that to women. I can see exactly what you're talking about. But it's also what we talked about earlier. Like Mm -hmm. we also don't see women doing it. So the more you can put women out there to show, again, if you see it, you can be it. Mm-hmm. is important in all aspects. That's why what you do is important because there's a very visceral, if you see it, you can be it with you because there's not a lot of African-American men or women in this industry at all. And you don't know what's possible if you don't see somebody that looks like you that came from where you came from. And so again, that's just the importance of being willing to put yourself out there because the more people who are willing to do that, the more people see you. And so it's more than just, I want to be on TV and look at me. It's, there's a real purpose behind it. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so crazy just to think about that. One thing that I did know, you brought this up when I worked at the bank and we had a company called Women and Company. Had some very interesting statistics. Are you familiar with Women and Co.? I am not. That's so a new Women one, Co. Right? was, this is back when I worked at this bank. This is a while back. So I don't know if this still, but the statistics that they gave us were very staggering. Women control the wallet. I don't care if they don't get talked to in the meeting, they still control the wallet. This is why the advisor that doesn't talk to the woman in the planning phase or whatever they're doing loses them. So 80% of the money in the United States is controlled by women. When I say that, they're the ones that are paying the bills. They're the ones looking at the checking account. They're the ones that actually know what's going on with the money, even if they're not earning it. Mm-hmm. So this company, Women and Company came out, it was a resource research company built for women by women, because what was happening is men would control the wallet and then they would pass away. And now you have this woman with all these assets and not quite know what to do because they'd been left out of conversations because they didn't want to be in them, but because of the way things were. So it is encouraging to know that companies are now seeing women as not only as the breadwinner, because the breadwinner thing with the women, 30%, I think that number's low. might be closer. It's not the majority, but it's getting up there. And more women are graduating from college with college degrees than men. I think it's like 55, 45 now, and the gap is growing. And the pandemic has been eye-opening. And people don't like to talk about this. And I brought this up multiple times on TV, Mm -hmm. and it never gets expanded on. But I'm starting to hear it more. Do you know that and I think it was the month of December, every single new unemployment claim was female. A hundred percent of the unemployment claims was women because after the holidays, more schools went remote again and women are much more likely than men to have to take on the role of caregiver for kids who are working doing remote school. Cause that requires supervision. I don't mm-hmm. care how old your kids are. My son did remote learning. It was <laughs> super, super time intensive. Like I did not get much work done. It was very difficult Mm -hmm. because I need to monitor everything he was doing at all times. And even if you have older kids, like I have a neighbor whose daughter is 10. I have a friend who has a 12 year old son that if they were not constantly monitoring, making sure those assignments were done, they were getting emails from teachers being like, your kid's not passing in his homework. He's not Mm -hmm. doing it correctly. He's not Mm -hmm. paying attention in class. It requires oversight. And women are far more likely than men to be the ones to take that on, even if they are the breadwinner. Because it's just innately like a given, like Mm -hmm. you're the mom. And so women have been disproportionately impacted by unemployment throughout this pandemic. 
And I think it was staggering. It was either November or December with 100% of the new unemployment claims were female. 100%. That's crazy. I did not know that. That's a, wow. They keep saying that for unemployment to see a noticeable difference, schools have to go back in person because until that happens, female participation in the workforce is going to be abnormally low. That's crazy. And I think about the last time, well, when we first seen female participation in the workplace go up is because the war. Well, in the financial crisis, men lost their jobs at a much higher rate than women. Oh, okay. 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 So, okay. So I'm just thinking about the last time. But as participation rate, yes, was war. Was war. But it's the opposite that's going on right now. It's women have fallen out of the workforce at a alarming rate and almost entirely can be attributed to the fact that remote learning is so pervasive and it requires a caregiver, no matter how old your kids are. Crazy. You know what? That's mind blowing. Like to think about that. Wow. So one of the things that you talk about is liquid alternatives. Mm -hmm. And so talk to us a little bit about the liquid alternative. So this is something that my career is just full of timing. So what are those? Because I know there's going to be some people like liquid alternative. What are those? Start there if you could. So think about hedge fund like strategies that are in a daily liquid form, Hmm. like an ETF or a mutual Hmm. fund or even a closed end fund for that matter. There's interval funds, but I don't consider them part of the liquid alts because they're still not daily liquid. They're hedge fund strategies. They're still subject to the 40 Act. And so they're not exactly like hedge funds. And I won't bore you with the details of what that means. I've written about it extensively. So if anybody's looking for that, you can go to my Twitter page. It's like right at the top. I have a link to one of the things that I've written recently about that. Links to the show notes. We'll get that in the show notes. I promise you. So in 2007, during the financial crisis, I was working for a hedge fund that blew up and I lost my job. But working for a hedge fund kind of opened my eyes to the importance of what hedge funds do for the markets. And it's come into, obviously, it's been in the news a lot lately in terms of like the whole GameStop thing. And I don't think people really appreciate the fact that hedge funds buy risk. They are risk takers Mm -hmm. and you need risk takers in the market. And they take more risk than everybody else because they are able to, because they can take on investment strategies that can't be done by the broader public because they're not required to have daily liquidity and they're subject to really intense constraints on who can invest in them. They can't market themselves. And part of the fact that they can't market themselves, they seem kind of mysterious is a part of the reason why they seem like these evil people because nobody understands them and you don't see them and I can't invest in them, but that's all regulatory driven. That's not like an intentional thing. Like hedge funds want to be secretive, like they have to be. And so they're a really important canary in the coal mine, if you will. And when I was working for the hedge fund, then the summer of 07, like we experienced significant issues with liquidity long before the crisis began. And so you could kind Mm -hmm. of see how things were starting to unravel because as I said, hedge funds are the biggest risk takers of the market. It's really important to have risk takers, risk buyers and risk sellers, right? And hedge funds are risk buyers, no matter the market conditions. And the health of hedge funds is important as a group. Hedge funds literally blow up every single day. And so, you know, it really opened my eyes. And at the same time, the SEC changed the 40 Act rules that allowed mutual funds with daily liquidity and ETFs to start to implement strategies that included hedging in a more Mm -hmm. meaningful way and leverage and things like that. So it was very timely that I was kind of in the industry and learning at that point. And I took it upon myself to sort of 
learn more about that and learn more how to build portfolios and the importance because I was learning in real time how important hedge funds were in terms of the market structure and how they could really help with portfolio construction and diversity and diversification. And then liquid alts became a thing. And so I was a really early adopter of including liquid alts in portfolio construction for risk management. And, you know, Larry wrote a great book about like, I think it's called like the next black swan or something. That's the entire premise of the book. I wrote a white paper in 2009, same idea. And so it's just become my thing. And like I preach the gospel of liquid alts and some people think, I, you know, that's stupid, you know, or they look at things in a vacuum and like that hasn't performed. But from a risk management standpoint, when you think about risk, especially today with zero interest rates where fixed income doesn't offer the same protection that it has in the past, you have to be creative. And liquid alts are really important and critical way in which you can sort of manage risk in portfolios. And now, because of the changes that happened in 0708 with the 40 Act, they're accessible to everybody. And you just need to kind of understand how to look at them, how to review them, and then how to implement them in your portfolio. And we're saying 40 Act, we're talking the Act 1940? Yes, we're talking talking? about the Investment Act of 1940, the thing that basically rules mutual fund structure and how they can invest and all that good stuff. On the investment company side. And I'm just yep. saying that for the listeners, yep. though, in case they hear like, what's 40 Act? And you just know that's the Investment Act of 1940. Yes. Exactly. You're just a wealth of knowledge. I love this. Like, I feel like I'm learning as we're talking. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't even think about liquid alts. And I'm thinking about, you know, how to put those in clients' portfolios. That's a whole nother conversation. We have that <laughs> offline. But as you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast, and we're changing the complexion of wealth. One of the questions I have for you is what inspires you to continue to grow, learn, and lead? Just making a difference. You know, your haters are always far more vocal than your supporters. It's just how it is. It's life. But when I hear people say that I am making a difference, and I get a lot of direct messages from women, from parents with young daughters telling me that I inspire them, which is still weird. That will never stop being weird for me because I really don't think I'm doing anything special. Like, I really like what I do. I can't believe I get paid for this. It's super challenging. I'm always learning. It's always interesting to kind of, you know, play out scenarios in my head and figure out new and different ways to do things and just learn from people. I always say like, I steal more content than I create from other people because that's our industry, right? It's about learning and reading and hearing as much of the different ways to look at things and then taking that information and building your own narrative or your own story. And I do a lot of that. So that's what motivates me is just feeling like I'm making a difference and being good at my job. One of these days, and I definitely am wrong a lot. I've been particularly lucky recently and I knock on wood because I'm due, but I've been right a lot more than I'm wrong recently. And because I'm in the media, it's like, I can say like, Hey, look, I was right. And you know, when people try to say like, you're not that smart, because that happens all the time. And tell me, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I usually have some former reference would be like, oh, remember in November when I talked about how small caps should outperform and you all told me I was crazy. I actually have video of me on TV talking about why we should be overweighting small caps in November and having another guest literally laughing and rolling his eyes at me. And I have that clip and I watched that clip because I'm like, oh, you thought I was stupid, didn't you? But I think just constantly proving people wrong and constantly getting positive feedback, even if it's not overly public, that I'm making a difference is what drives me. I mean, I like what I do. You know what? Loving what you do 
and proving people wrong come across. Shame on that guy. Shame I legitimately on that guy. always laugh and say, I kind of have a Tom Brady chip on my shoulder. Like I will always get defensive when people come at me, no matter how much success I have in life, I will get defensive. It's a personal flaw because I'm constantly feeling like I'm being underestimated even when I'm not. But quite frankly, that's what drives me. That's my fuel. And so I find ways to feel like jilted in order to maintain that fire. I don't know if you watched The Last Dance. I'll say this and I got one more question for you. But did you watch The Last Dance? And Michael Jordan, like, I can't remember the story, but he made up this whole story about this guy that said something to him just so he could be motivated. It was something crazy, but he needed that motivation and he found it. If you could offer a piece of advice for our listeners, what would that piece of advice be? It's to not feel like because you're not good at something that you can't be successful at it. In life, I have not, it's a joke, ongoing joke in my family and with my high school algebra teacher that I am absolutely horrendously bad at math. I failed algebra twice. I failed calculus in college. I got a D in accounting. When I went to grad school, I did okay in accounting because now I had something applicable. But I took a financial statement analysis course and I had a female professor who told me that I should really consider something else because I didn't really get it. Mm. And I think I got a C in my derivatives class. It never came easy to me. I mean, it does now because sort of once it kind of clicks, it clicks. But it never came easy to me, but I enjoyed it. And it always bothered me that there were people out there that discouraged me because it didn't come easy. And so I feel like people should know that just because something doesn't come easy to you, if you're passionate about it or you enjoy it, that shouldn't be a discouragement. Like it should cause you to want to work harder, but it shouldn't make you feel like you can't do it. I mean, unless it's a physical like ability, that's different. But when it comes to stuff like this, don't let people discourage you from chasing what you want to do if you're passionate about it, if you're willing to put in the time and effort to get better, even if you were really bad at it to begin with. Because I failed algebra twice, folks. Wise words, wise words. If people want to get more of you, where can they find you? What social medias are you active on? So I'm super active on Twitter. And my handle is Shana, my first name, S621. I should probably have come up with something more creative, but at this point, I can't change it. And then I also have an Instagram account, which is just finance underscore queen 2020. Okay. That's where you can find me. And we will make sure we put a link to all that in the show notes so people can find you. I always love seeing what you have to say, especially when you're on the news and then just some of the tweets that you make. So it's been a pleasure following you and just an honor to have you on the show. Like, I love what you're doing. You have a great energy about you. You have this blue collar work ethic to you, which probably came from where you were raised. That is true. So just want to thank you on behalf of the Minority Money Podcast for coming on. And yeah, so as you all know, this is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at minority money podcast. That's F-A-N 
at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here. And until next time, 